Coming to you live from the Republic of Texas and broadcasting around the world, this is the Max McGuire Show. This is our last chance to take this country back. That's true. Listen, it doesn't matter that Joe Biden is losing his mind. He still betrayed this country. Come on, man. So get ready, because the Max McGuire Show starts right now. Welcome back to another edition of the Max McGuire Show. My name is Max McGuire. Happy Monday. Oh, man, it does feel like the Mondays, doesn't it? I wish the weekend was a little longer, but we are here, and uh, I have to apologize. I got sucked into the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial for a little bit too long today. So by the time I realized what was going on, a couple hours already, like an hour and a half had already gone by. So today I'm going to do a podcast topic that I had originally kind of started thinking up when I was with Conservative Daily. Um, if people don't know, I had tried to start a new podcast channel over there called Real American History. It was going to talk about American history, the heroes that, for whatever reason, get left out of our textbooks and the kids don't learn about them. Um, and, and kind of cutting through all of the leftist BS that they're injecting into history these days and to really present American history the way it happened. Not just so kids could watch this podcast. I don't think this podcast would be good for kids. But so parents and grandparents can learn about these stories, learn about the parts of American history that likely you guys haven't even heard of before. And as a parent, as a grandparent, teach these lessons to your children as well. And also because they're cool stories and they're worthy of repeating. They're cool stories that are worthy of repeating. So I'm going to turn off my sound because I just got a stupid update. Um... No videos today, because we're going to be talking about the 1700s. If you like this kind of discussion, if you like learning about history and understanding how history has affected us today, again, I highly recommend you pick up my book available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, The Conservative's Guide to Winning Every Gun Control Argument. I go through historical examples and, and how history has led to the Second Amendment and, and different historical examples to use to combat leftist gun control um, ideology. It's going to become more and more necessary these days. We had a couple shootings over the weekend. The left is really out for blood. So if you haven't already, pick up my book on Amazon or Barnes & Noble and arm yourself with the tools you need to defend the Second Amendment. So back when I was trying to do these history podcasts on Conservative Daily, ran into a bunch of roadblocks. Joe ultimately told me to stop it. He said I wasn't allowed to do these podcasts. I had to do other things, apparently. Um, so that never got past two episodes over there. Now that I have my own show, I'm going to be injecting these American history podcasts every now and then. Not every day. It's not going to have its own channel because um, I, I need to just focus on building one. But every now and then I'm going to be talking about different history um, stories, tales, talking about American heroes, people that I find really interesting. Um, when I was preparing to do this podcast over there, I had a whole list of people who had won the Medal of Honor that I feel like, I mean, obviously their stories are incredibly heroic. Um, I've put a couple of them in my book. But so every now and then I'm going to come up with these podcasts and just take a step back from contemporary politics and kind of talk about how we got here. So, yeah, obviously, I mean, these are going to be American stories of exceptionalism, heroism, ingenuity, the very tales that make up what this country is today. And again, for, for whatever reason, I guess for brevity, they get left out of the history textbooks. So over the weekend, I was at Home Depot, had to get stuff to do some yard work. You know, same old, same old mulch, grass seed, fertilizer, um, stuff for 
irrigation. And I found myself walking through the lumber section. I always love looking at the lumber section. First of all, I love the smell. Not pressure tree, just regular lumber. Love the smell. And I also love the economy. I mean, it, it, it's fascinating to me how the lumber economy works. It's not particularly sexy. Um, and we saw a couple months ago last year how the price of lumber skyrocketed. And everyone was just like, oh, well, that's just how it is. And it got me remembering a couple of stories from American history that if you grew up in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maine, you probably know these stories because they're taught in local history. Um, but it, it always just struck me how Americans, when the price of lumber skyrocketed, we just said, hey, that's, it is what it is. Whereas in the 1700s, late 1700s, when the price of lumber skyrocketed, when regulators came in, when the king came in to try and seize people's lumber, they actually revolted, fought back. And as the title of the podcast suggests, the fight over lumber ultimately led to the first American naval victory. On Rumble, there's a little asterisk next to that because technically this naval victory happened before the U.S. Navy was even created in October of 1775, but it still counts because these are American colonists after a night of drinking decided to take on the British Navy over lumber. But we'll get to that in a second. As all good stories go, I have to tell you where we're going, get you a little interested, and then pull back and explain how we got there. So the American Revolution has always been a story of men and women who were just pushed too far. And after being pushed too far, they, they decided to fight against the most powerful military known to man at the time, the British military. We know many of these stories, such as the Boston Tea Party, right? The British taxed tea and the colonists fed up, dressed up as Native Americans, hurled tea into Boston Harbor in protest. Right? We've heard about the Stamp Act which was a British tax on all paper products. So not only just paper, but also prepared legal documents now had a tax. Newspapers had a tax. If you wanted to print something on paper, you had to pay the tax to the British crown. The American history textbooks today, though, they conflate many of these taxes together, and they conflate the rebellions against these taxes. Like, I mean, everyone's heard of the Boston Massacre, right? The Boston Tea Party. But a lot of these other smaller rebellions end up getting left out. The truth is that the colonies had been rebelling for years before war actually broke out. And every, every time the British crown levied a new tax against the colonists, they would rise up against it. So today I want to talk about wood, specifically lumber. The first story I'm going to talk about is the Pine Tree Riots of, seven, of 1772. They happened in New Hampshire. Um, the second will be the Battle of Machias, which happened in Maine, in 1775, was America's first naval victory. Now, I say Massachusetts and Maine and New Hampshire. At the time, Maine, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, uh, they were all part of the Massachusetts colony. So I put a map on the screen. A little bit confusing. These, these boundaries changed over time. Some refer to the actual um, the grant, the land grant, the proclamation line of 16, 1763, Massachusetts Bay Colony Grant, right? Obviously, Massachusetts got split up. Massachusetts. Now there's a modern day New Hampshire. There's Maine. But back then it used to be one big colony. So as I talk about Maine or Massachusetts or New Hampshire, I'll probably use the modern day description of where it is just so you know. But understand at the time this was all one colony. This was all one colony. If you grew up in New England, you've probably heard these stories before. Both of these have one thing in common. As I said earlier, they involved wood. Now, since the dawn of man, wood has been essential, an essential material 
for both shelter and survival. While the Spanish conquistadors explored the New World in search of gold and silver, the British were much more realistic. You see, the British wanted wood. They also wanted crops. They wanted areas to grow crops, right? But they weren't going to the New World in search of a, of a city of gold. They weren't looking for El Dorado. They desperately needed wood. And the reason for that is in the early 1600s, England was facing a serious, serious problem. England, the England, modern-day UK, is obviously it's an island. So they have a very limited amount of space. And if you're going to have the most powerful military in the world, you're going to need a powerful navy. Remember, the British had colonies all over the world. In order to have those colonies, maintain those colonies, you need a powerful navy. In order to build ships, you need a lot, a lot of wood. The British were running out of it. Well, actually, that's not entirely true. There were still forests left, just as there are forests left now in, uh, in the UK. But they were running out of what's called old-growth trees. And there's, there was a significant campaign in Britain, even in the 1600s, against deforestation to protect the old-growth trees that remained. The English crown, you see, they understood that wood was a key material that they needed to maintain their empire. So they began protecting the forests and regulating the harvest of harvesting of timber to make sure that the industry would be sustainable. Remember, they're an island. Once you exhaust all of the resources on the island, you can't just knock on France's door and ask to borrow a couple hundred acres of trees to build ships to go to war against France. A single ship in the British Navy could require a thousand trees to build. Some ships use as many as 6,000 harvested trees. At the height of the British Navy when they were using wooden ships, it was estimated that it would have taken 1.2 million trees to build all of Britain's active warships. Just put that in perspective. At the height of, of Britain's empire when they used wooden ships, 1.2 million old growth trees, so not little saplings, we're talking about big monstrous trees that you could use to build masts. 1.2 million. For example, the HMS Victory, which was built in the 1750s, used around 6,000 trees. It took 250 loggers in England to clear over 100 acres of forest to find 6,000 mature oak trees. Now, once the wood was harvested, it had to be cut, dried, and that process could last years because they didn't have the ability to kill and dry wood like we do today. So, as I said, at, at its height, the sun never set on the British Empire. The crown had colonies on every single continent. They required a lot of ships, not just for the Navy, but also for their merchant ships. Because remember, the whole point of this was trade. So it's not good enough just to have military ships. They also needed merchant ships. And again, that requires a lot, a lot of wood. Put it simply, the British realized that in the early 1600s that their empire would require more timber than the British Isles could possibly provide. So they decided to colonize America for that reason, among others. They wanted to gain access to the limitless new source of timber on the American, North American continent. Now, we all remember the social studies lessons about mercantilism. I'm going to see if I can pull that up. I thought I had one. Uh, we all remember, and, and this picture on the screen is obviously them building a, uh, a, a ship out of wood. Just pull up a mercantilism image, just so you can see, just in case you forget about the mercantile triangle. Take this down. The mercantile trials. So mercantilism, the idea was you would take the harvest, the actual manufactured products from England, right? 
and he would sell them to the colonies. And in exchange, the colonies would send the raw materials back to England to be manufactured. Now, in the actual triangle, the part from Africa to the U.S., that was slavery. So British would sell finished products to Africa for slaves, but they would also sell finished products to the American colonies as well. But this was the mercantile triangle. This was how colonialism was designed to run. This is how colonialism was designed to run. So in order to make this work, you had to have a lot of raw materials and crops coming back to England. Otherwise, their factories couldn't manufacture the goods. They knew what materials and crops they needed the colonies to provide. Now, one negative of this was that it was a closed system. The colonists were expected to buy only British goods. Other imports were heavily, heavily tariffed. If you want, you could buy British-made furniture, but if you wanted to buy French-made furniture, there were so many tariffs put on it that it was just not worth even thinking about. Now, it's important to note that the mercantile system didn't outlaw colonial manufacturing. Just because the colonies were a good source for British industry didn't mean that they were barred from building goods themselves. One of the key exceptions here was timber. I just mentioned furniture. It's very expensive to ship furniture from England to the U.S., to the colonies. Um, takes up a lot of space. So it was expected that, obviously, the rich and the powerful could afford to have their furniture shipped in from England, but the average American would need to have furniture made colonies. Because it just doesn't make sense. It would take too long, take too much money. So obviously there was a need for the colonies to build something with timber. So the colonies had to be able to use some of the timber for itself. But the, the, the British crown, the king of England, was adamant. Yes, the colonies could build their own wooden furniture, wooden goods. But they had to leave the mature pine trees for the British So in 1691, the King of England mandated that all of the pine trees in the American colonies with a diameter greater than 24 inches would have to be reserved for British shipbuilding. He literally decreed, if you look at the map, you see on the screen this map of the the colonies, that every tree from sea to to shiny sea, well not at that time it didn't go to shiny sea, but all the way west, the edge of the colonial map, every single tree with a diameter greater than 24 inches, just belonged to the King of England. And so he would actually send people out into the forests to mark the trees as the king's property. They weren't the country's property. They were the King of England's property. Anyone caught illegally harvesting one of old, these old-growth trees would face a fine at the time of 50 pounds. But just to explain, adjusted for inflation, that would be more than $12,000 in today's money. Imagine cutting down a tree and being fined $12,000 to do it because a king on the other side of the world said it was actually his. That's for cutting down a single tree in a continent of literally endless forest. But this law was never enforced. You can see there, though, they're going through the forest and they're marking trees. They would mark it with, uh, with this with this image, this, is, this, was, this broad arrow, when this was marked on the tree, this decreed that that was the king's property. Now, at the same time, this law really was, as I said, never enforced. They would go through the forest. They'd mark maybe like a few yards into the forest. They'd mark those trees, but they weren't going to mark every tree on the continent. So this law was really not enforced. And it's very easy to kind of get around, right? At the time, if you cut down a tree and you see a, a, a 
the king's mark on it. Well, what do you do? You just kind of cut that out of the tree, right? I mean, it's, it's very easy to get around as long as you don't get caught holding the log that has a diameter measured at greater than 24 inches. But it was never enforced. In 1691, though, the law was amended. Sorry, in 1722, the law was amended to include even more trees. So I guess the British said, hey, we need even more trees, more trees, more trees. So in 1722, the law was amended. Except 24 inches in diameter, the king claimed to own every tree on the North American continent with a diameter greater of 12 inches, one foot. Well, that's a big deal, right? The colonists can, colonists can understand, hey, you know what? I, I say, they can say, fine, 24 inch diameter tree. That's, that's a lot of work too. I don't really need it. I guess he can have it. But all of a sudden, once you start talking about 12 inch diameter trees, the colonists had a big, big problem with that. And that's where things got a lot more complicated. As I said, they would mark these trees with broad arrows, indicating that they belonged to the tree, to the king. Um, and even if they came to inspect the lumber yards, it was very hard to actually find the evidence. That went unenforced until 1766. So think about that. This is the law originally passed in 1691, never enforced. Amended in 1722, never enforced. You have the French and Indian War. All of a sudden, Britain starts enforcing the law. 1766, a man named John Wentworth became governor of, New, of the New Hampshire, part of the Massachusetts colony, and for whatever reason, he wanted that law to be strictly enforced. So in 1771, John Sherman, who was the deputy surveyor of New Hampshire, began auditing the, count, the, the colony's sawmills, going to all these sawmills and checking to see whether they were illegally cutting down the king's trees. During these spot audits, and I think I have a... Yeah, so this is a newer picture, obviously. Um, it's a newer picture, obviously, taken with a camera. Um, so this isn't from 1700s, but a sawmill would have looked a lot like this. Wooden structures with wooden shingles and just piles and piles of logs laying around waiting to be cut down to size. So John Sherman, deputy surveyor of the New Hampshire colony, um, starts going around and auditing. And Sherman and his men found six mills in Joffstown and Ware that had logs larger than 12 inches in diameter. They marked those logs with the king's marking and charged the mill owners with stealing the king's timber. Just imagine that. You, you are in business cutting down trees. It's never been forced. All of a sudden, someone shows up and says, oh, you've illegally cut down some trees. Here's your fine. Remember, each tree was $12,000 in today's money. The mill owners decided, though, that they were going to fight back against the law because it wasn't just unjust, but it was unnecessary. There was no shortage of large trees, as there were in England. They're, they stretched as far as the eye could see, so why should the king of England own all of them? It's just unnecessary. There, there's no harm done. If they cut down one, there's 50 others right next to it. So the mill owners hired a lawyer by the name of Samuel Blodgett to represent them. His job was to go sit down with Governor Wentworth and fight to get the charges dropped. That's what he did. Uh, they hired him. They paid him. He went to the governor's mansion, and he met with Wentworth. But the meeting went very differently than they had planned. You see, instead of arguing with the governor to try and get the charges dropped, the governor offered Blodgett the job of surveyor of the king's woods, and he accepted. He never even bothered to get the charges dropped. You think about corruption today, how corrupt uh, government can be, how, how corrupt lawyers can be. 
In this case, you had a lawyer representing Mills who were being targeted with this law. And instead of actually doing what he said he was going to do, he was offered the job of enforcing that law, going through the woods and marking the trees. Instead, he returned to his clients and said there was nothing he could do. And they should all plead guilty and pay the fine. $12,000 in today's money per log. The mill owners in Joffstown, they paid the fines. And they got to keep the logs and restart their mills. Because every day they were down, they were losing money. But the mill owners in Ware, New Hampshire, refused to pay. So on April 13, 1772, the sheriff and his deputy were sent to South Ware with an arrest warrant and were ordered to take the leader of this resistance, Ebenezer Mudgett, into custody. That is possibly the greatest name in early American history, Ebenezer Mudgett. Uh, <laughs> that's what they did. They took Ebenezer Mudgett into cu custody, and he was ultimately released with the promise that he would come back the next day and pay his bail. It was a different time then. You got arrested, basically let go on the honor system, because where would you go? It's not like you could disappear into the entire continent. <laughs> there are only so many colonies. Later that night, though, Ebenezer Mudgett met with the townspeople. Many of them had offered to pay Mudgett's bail. But the more they got to talking, the more they realized and believed that the whole system was corrupt as hell. So eventually, they decided that instead of paying the bail, they were going to beat the snot out of the sheriff and his deputy while they were sleeping in the local tavern. I, I kid you not. It went from, hey, we should pay this fine, to, hey, let's go beat up the sheriff. So that night, Ebenezer Mudgett led a posse of 20 to 40 men to the tavern. They covered their faces with black soot and they ambushed the two law enforcement officers while they slept. They decided that the punishment should be one lashing for each of the trees that the, that the mills were charged with illegally cutting down. They beat them with tree switches, which is basically like a pliable branch. It's, it, it has some bend to it. And, and the rumor was that these were switches cut off of the actual logs that they were trying to, trying to bust them for. So they had some, some give to them, but they still hurt like the dickens if you were being lashed with one. So when they were done beating the sheriff and his deputy senseless, they then shaved the hair off of their horse's manes, cut off their horse's ears and tails, and then chased the beaten lawmen out of, out of town on top of their mutilated horses. I, I don't know why they decided to mutilate the horses. I don't think the horses did anything wrong, but that's what they did. When the beaten cops arrived back to the city, riding their shaved and bloodied horses, the governor was absolutely shocked. This was one of, if not the first, real violent, violent riots against British rule. The sheriff ultimately regrouped and gathered a posse of his own to punish the men who did this to him. Obviously, you're a lawman. You can't just beat the sheriff senseless and get away with it. He was ultimately able to catch one of the perpetrators who in turn ratted out all of the rest. They were charged with assault, rioting, and disturbing the peace. Noticeably absent was any kind of animal cruelty. And the rioters pled guilty and were sentenced to pay a fine of 20 shillings each, one pound. This woke a lot of the colonists up. The fine for cutting down one single King George pine tree was 50 pounds. The fine for beating the living snot out of the sheriff and his deputy and mutilating their horses was one pound. It highlighted the lunacy of the entire issue. It showed how ridiculous the laws protecting the king's timber were. It also emboldened New England colonists. If they could get away with beating the sheriff to a pulp, then why not just revolt and take down the whole system? So it's no surprise that the sheriff, Benjamin Whiting, ended up fighting on the British side when the war broke out. 
the rioters all ended up siding with the colonies. It's not that hard to predict where that was going. Interestingly enough, the judge who handed down the light sentences helped write New Hampshire's state constitution. So the Pine Tree Riot was important for a number of reasons. Obviously, it's one of the earliest examples of real forceful resistance to British tyranny. It reinforces how heartless and cruel British law and taxation was. But also, it's kind of a game of colonial chicken. Colonists versus loyalists. And the loyalists blinked. They could have thrown the book at the rioters. They, sh they could have locked them up till the end of their days. They beat the snot out of the sheriff. But because the judiciary was full of co uh, colonial sympathizers, and also because the British feared e an even more violent reprisal if they made examples of these loggers, they were giving a very lenient sentence. And through it all, the British did not repeal the ban on chopping down large pines. Two years removed from the Boston Massacre, they knew that war was eventually going to come. They knew they were going to need these trees to build up their navy. The pine tree rise showed them that things were only going to start getting worse, and they were going to need all the old growth pines they could get to build up their navy. So you fast forward a couple years, three years. It's 1775. The, the British army is now trapped in Boston. I, I talked about this on that old podcast I did for Conservative Daily. The colonists had routed the British on their way back from Lexington and Concord, and they took refuge inside of the city of Boston, and there was a siege, an American colonial siege around the city of Boston. This is before, um, this is before you had Henry Knox bringing the cannons from Ticonderoga, before George Washington could put those cannons up on the high ground and force the British out. Before all that, the British were locked down in Boston, and the colonists were surrounding them, not letting anyone out. So talked about Lexington Concord, right? Talked about that on the old po podcast. How it inspired 80-year-old Samuel Whittemore to take on a column of British soldiers on his own and killing three of them. How it inspired Benedict Arnold to go to Fort Ticonderoga and, and, and steal the cannons. How it inspired Henry Knox to drag those Ticonderoga cannons hundreds of miles through the slush and the snow so they could use to free Boston from the rule, from British rule. Today, I wanted to tell you a story of Jeremiah O'Brien right there. Chances are, unless you grew up in the Machias Bay Area in Maine, or you're in the Navy, you've never heard of Jeremiah O'Brien. But Jeremiah O'Brien is one of these young-ish Americans who heard about Lexington and Concord and felt compelled to do something extraordinary against the most powerful Navy on Earth. As I said, the British military was spooked after Lexington and Concord. After suffering almost all of their losses fighting back, retreating, they holed up inside the city and barred the gates. The colonists were happily obliged, began a siege on the city in the late spring of 1775. Here's the problem, though. So the British had access to the sea. They, they could regroup. They could bring new soldiers in. They could bring goods from Britain, arms, munitions. But they couldn't get anything by land. They couldn't get outside the city. And the minute they left the gates of the city, they were being fired upon. So they were trapped. The British felt that the land siege was pointless because they had this big and powerful navy. At the time, it was estimated that there were 250 British naval vessels in the colonies at the start of the war. Now, but this included everything from first-rate ships that had 100 guns all the way down to the small sailboat sloops used for sailing to and from shore. While this might not seem like a lot at the time, the American Navy hadn't even been created yet. These ships were all though the, these ships were all stretched from Georgia up to Nova Scotia. That's a lot of territory for just 250 ships to cover. 
if they had all gathered, they'd be unstoppable. But spread out across the entire eastern seaboard, it, there's some opening to take on some of these ships. So the British began conscripting colonists to serve as their merchant mariners. The reason for that was they were in desperate need of wood. Normally, they would have just sent soldiers out the front gates to go and collect wood in the forest to bring it back, but they couldn't do that. And with the British trying to fortify Boston, trying to build up the ramparts, also, you had General Thomas Gage, he needed to build officers' quarters and new barracks for these men. Obviously, anyone who study the American Constitution, you know that the Third Amendment prohibits the government from forcing Americans to quarter troops in their home. That is in the Constitution because of what the British did in Boston. They were forcing colonists to basically let soldiers live in their homes. Not just that, but also to feed them, take care of them, change their linens. It was starting to make the American colonists really pissed off. So even though the British maintained they had the right to do this, they knew that this was a powder keg waiting to explode. And they couldn't afford to just continue forcing the colonists put these soldiers up in their house. So they desperately needed to build officers' quarters and barracks for the new soldiers that were coming in daily from England and from around the colonies to reinforce Boston against this siege. But that would require a lot, a lot of wood. A lot of wood. More than, more than they could get by ship. The only other source of wood would have to be harvested far away from Boston and then taken to ship, take, take, and then shipped to the city by boat. Couldn't just go nearby because the, the colonists would fight them. So the British were looking at the map and they decided that the best place to do this would be in a place called Machias Bay. Shown here on screen, Machias Bay. This is in modern day Maine, though at the time still considered part of the Massachusetts colony. So they began conscripting all of these local ship owners while General Gage and Admiral Samuel Graves conscripted many of the merchant mariners. One of them, named Ichabod Jones, decided to help willingly and struck a deal with England. Now, I use the word willingly very loosely because it's hard to tell the fact that someone volunteered right before they would have been drafted doesn't mean it really is a volunteer. They're just trying to get out in front of it. But Ichabod Jones did come to the British willingly and offered to help them. The deal that they struck stipulated that the British would allow Ichabod Jones to transport pork and flour from Boston to a rebel hotspot known as Machias. And he could sell it for profit and he could make money on it. But it had to also be exchanged for lumber which he would then bring back to Boston. When all was said and done, Jones would earn a commission on all of the sales. Now, most of Machias's economy was built on the trade of lumber and firewood to Boston. You had this area nearby, not too far, tons of, tons of uh, forests, easy to chop down the wood, throw it on a little boat, ship it to Boston, instant cash. But when, I mean, without, without this trade, the... the town, the village would cease to exist. It was that essential to the area that they continue selling logs to Boston. In May of 1775, the townspeople pleaded with the Massachusetts Provincial Congress to help replenish their food stocks so they wouldn't have to trade with the British. Basically, they told the colonial body that had been formed to govern Massachusetts, govern, basically the resistance Congress before the Continental Congress was created. They said, hey, normally we're going to have to sell wood to Boston in order for, to feed our families over the winter. Give us food 
and then we can tell them to pound sand when they come asking for wood. But before the Massachusetts Provincial Congress could respond, Ichabod Jones arrived with two sloops. Two sloops. I want to show you what a sloop is. This is a sloop. It's, it's not a first-rate ship. It's got, it doesn't have a ton of cannons, but it does have some. And these were primarily useful for sailing to and from shore. If they didn't have a, a lot of water displacement, they could sail in shallower waters. That's what the British sent Ichabod Jones with, two of these sloops. They were named the Unity and the Polly. And they were loaded with more than enough food to feed the entire town through winter. The townspeople met, though, and they decided that they weren't going to do business with Jones. They would rather starve than help the British war effort. This absolutely enraged Jones. Here, he put his own livelihood on the line, stopped doing his own business, and this was going to be the only way he could feed his family. See, the British had also sent a warship, the HMS Margareta, to guard both of Ichabod Jones's sloops. Captain Jones, our ordered the warship to move closer to town and to point its guns at the civilian homes. So the townspeople didn't like this at all. The Machias committee documented these developments. I'm going to read a passage here. They said, quote, The people, considering themselves nearly as prisoners of war, passed a vote that Captain Jones might proceed in his business as usual without molestation, that they would purchase the provisions he brought into the place and pay him according to the contract. End quote. So you see, they went from voting no to after he turned the guns on the town, changing their mind and voting yes. Many of the townspeople, as I said, did not take kindly to being held at gunpoint and forced to do business with the enemy. They were even angrier at what came next. Jones announced that, yes, so thank you for doing business with me. But he said he would only do business with those who had voted in favor of trading uh, of, of the trading terms. So even though the town had voted to do business, anyone who voted no would not trade with. So theoretically, they would starve over winter. So a local militia colonel named Benjamin Foster had conspired with other locals to abduct Jones on Sunday during church services. This is how crazy this story gets. He, not only did he just threaten to destroy the town, he's actually coming ashore to go to church with people. And a colonial, uh, a colonial militia colonel was going to try and abduct him right during the church services. The plan fell apart, though, because Ichabod Jones saw the militiamen coming. The British sailors, they fled to the, the sea. They went back to the HMS Margareta. Jones, on the other hand, for whatever reason, didn't get that memo and decided to flee into the, into the woods, where he would remain in hiding for two days. With Jones out of the picture and the British sailors on the run, a local immigrant named Jeremiah O'Brien, who I just put up, an Irish immigrant, <laughs> started gathering townspeople at the local pub to try and get enough people to take on the British Navy. Like so many early acts of American heroism, this plan was drafted in a pub with a lot of drinking going on. So with Ichabod Jones's boat, uh, boats, his sloops, still moored at the dock, O'Brien and, and approximately 34, quote, athletic young fellows, that's from the history that was written at the time, from the village, decided that they were going to take the ships, take the boats. They were armed with muskets. Not really muskets. They were actually fouling guns. So that's like an early, early concept of a shotgun. Um, fouling guns and pitchforks. They took control of one of the sloops, which is called the Unity. 
I'm not even kidding about this. Historical accounts documented that what O'Brien and the men brought aboard was, quote, 20 fouling pieces, shotguns, three rounds of powder and ball, so enough for everyone to fire three shots, 13 pitchforks, a number of axes, a small bag of bread, a few pieces of pork, and a barrel of water. This was their provisions that they were going to use to take on the most powerful navy in the world. So they spent that night building what's called desk, uh, deck breastworks. That's the idea that of building up, um, building up some armor. So not really armor, but just some wood that would basically sit as, as high as someone's chest when they're out at sea so they can at least hide behind it and use it as some cover. It's called a breastwork, defensive barrier that could protect a man about chest high. The next day, the men took a vote and named Jeremiah O'Brien as their captain. He had gotten them all drunk the night before, riled them up. They took a boat, but he was going to be the one that led them. Now, remember, this was, they only had muskets, pitchforks, hatchets. They set sail to go and capture the much larger British warship, the HMS Margareta. Put that on screen as well. <laughs> this is the depiction of it. So, just so we're clear, the first, this, this was the first naval battle in the American Revolution. It was before the Continental Congress had even created the Navy. It consisted of a bunch of hungover townspeople on a commandeered sailboat led by an, an Irish immigrant armed with shotguns and pitchforks setting out to take on a British warship. Now, the HMS Margareta, shown on the screen, was not the biggest ship in the British Navy, not by a long shot. It's reported in the documentation that it was armed with four, some say 10, but between four and 10, six-pound guns, 20 swivel guns. So those are bigger guns that can swivel on the breastwork. Um, they could fire a one-pound ball, 20 wall pieces, 40 muskets, 40 cutlasses, 40 pikes, 40 boarding axes, and two boxes of hand grenades, a few pairs of pistols, and ample powder and ball. What the colonists didn't know, though, was that in the attempt to evacuate after they had that abduction attempt in the church, the HMS Margaret had become crippled. They tried to turn into a strong wind, and, uh, and they basically cracked their mast. Now, anyone who's ever tried to like, uh, take a catamaran out to sea or whatever, you know that if you turn the wrong way in the wind, it can send the jib swinging across, hit you in the head, knock you overboard. Um, well, that's what apparently happened. They caught a really bad wind trying to turn, and it, and it snapped the main boom clean in half. So they were unable to really navigate. They could still kind of go a little bit. They, they limped to a nearby town, and they cannibalized another ship for parts, but they weren't nearly as fast as they would have been if they hadn't been crippled. So it was after this patch job that the hungover colonists were able to catch up with this British war warship. So the Margareta opened fire. They see these drunk... Americans, hungover Americans, <laughs> sailing after them with pitchforks. They opened fire. One of the American sailors, a man by the name of McNeil, was killed. And another, who was referred to as Cool Broth, was mortally wounded. But still, Jeremiah O'Brien urged the men aboard the Unity to get alongside the Margareta and for the crew to prepare to board her. So the Unity pulled up alongside the, the British war trip while the guns were being reloaded, and O'Brien hopped aboard the British vessel. Change the image. Hopped aboard the British vessel. It was at this moment, though, that the Unity, remember, these are all hungover townspeople, started pulling away from the Margareta. 
they forgot to tie off. So they weren't actually attached, leaving Jeremiah O'Brien, this, this man right here, alone on board the British warship. So he thought he was going to have people behind him. He hopped on, ah, we'll take the fight to them. Ends up he's alone with 40 angry and armed Brits. Immediately, seven British sailors that already had muskets pointed at Jeremiah O'Brien and opened fire. Miraculously, though, not a single shot hit O'Brien, even at that close range, one side of the ship to another. The sailors then charged O'Brien with their bayonets, which forced him to jump overboard, otherwise he would have been impaled. So he is now swimming in the water. The British are reloading their guns. The hungover townspeople are trying to figure out how to sail this ship. They swing back around and they pull him out of the water. And it's at this point that his, his brother John pulled him out of the water. It's at this point that Jeremiah O'Brien decided to give a speech to encourage his men, two of which were just killed, to go at it again. And this is the speech he gave. Quote, Brother John, you have won the palm, but man that sweeps me hearties and lay us alongside once more and stand ready to fasten on to him when you reach him. Apparently, this was all the crew needed to hear because when they circled back around, they prepared to board the Margareta for the second time. Now, this time, O'Brien made sure that the boats were tied together before he leapt aboard. Not only did he leap on, but 20 colonists armed with pitchforks joined O'Brien on board the HMS Margareta for the second attempt at boarding in a few minutes. So the HMS Margareta, a little, in, little information about this, was captained by a man named James Moore. Admiral Graves had personally ordered him to travel to Machais to protect the wood shipments. It was at this moment that Moore, seeing O'Brien boarding the ship for a second time, decided to throw everything he could at the hungover Irishman. Literally, he took a box of hand grenades and started throwing them. Like, just think about the craziness of this. These aren't big ships. You start lobbing hand grenades on wooden ships at people on your own. It's just crazy. It's, he's, but he's throwing hand grenades like crazy. At that point, 18-year-old Samuel Watts, American colonist, saw this, raised his musket, and fired a single musket ball, striking Captain Moore in the chest. He fell right there. The battle continued. battle continued. But eventually, the British realized that they did not have a commanding officer. And since the colonists were winning, they decided that they were going to surrender. The battle was over in less than an hour. In less than an hour. Jeremiah O'Brien holds the honor of being the first American to capture a British war vessel and to cut down its flag. The cool story. When the ship returned to port, the wounded were unloaded. Captain Moore was still clinging to life and he was rushed to a nearby house for treatment. There, he was asked why he had kept fighting even though the colonists were clearly going to win. And he said, quote, I fought not for my life, but for honor. He died the following day. Now, it's said that, that James Moore was actually buried in the Machias Cemetery despite being an adversary of foe. And when the local historians wrote about why the town had voted to let him be buried in the cemetery, they said he, they respected his, quote, many manly qualities, end quote. Listen, that's, that's one way to do it, I guess. Now, Jeremiah O'Brien would remain captain of the unity, later named the Machias Liberty, for two more years. He became the first commissioned officer of the Massachusetts State Navy in 1775. There are a couple other fights that he was involved with up and down 
the the northeast coast of, of the the colonies uh, in in uh nova scotia right there was a couple battles there and he was instru- instrumental so he was remembered as a hero and what's really interesting i want to put these up on the screen to show you that he remains one of the few non presidents to have multiple ships in the u.s navy named after him so I think here's one of them. This is a 1909 torpedo ship that was called the USS O'Brien. In 1914, you had the O'Brien class destroyer. You had this in 1940, which is another destroyer. You had 1944, you see the pattern named the USS O'Brien. And then lastly, you had the USS O'Brien, a 1972 destroyer. And there was also one um, non-war ship that was that was named the USS the SS O'Brien. But it's interesting to show because he wasn't a president. So, and it wasn't some like historical name like the USS Enterprise that gets reused. He was just a drunk Irish immigrant, <laughs> hungover Irish immigrant, who decided to take on a British warship with some pitchforks. He has been honored in the U.S. Navy. And they've named now six ships after him. So I told the story for a number of reasons. I told the story because I think it's awesome. I think it's absolutely amazing, um, and, and I don't know why the history books don't teach these. Obviously, you don't want to teach kids about how drinking can lead to a night of raiding a British warship, <laughs> but it, it, it shows you, when you look at it, it shows you just how in, in, <laughs> ingenious these colonists were. I mean, realize they were doing this over trees, over lumber, and also because that last story, because the British threatened to destroy the entire town. That's a big part of it, too. But at the heart of all of this was a fight over lumber, trees. Whereas today, if lumber's too high, you're like, oh, I just won't buy it. Here, it actually was a call to arms. These were stories of ordinary men rising to the occasion and doing extraordinary things. And this is a story of a man who was emboldened by victories in Lexington and Concord, decided to stand up to the most powerful military on the planet, and he won. And yes, this constitutes technically the first U.S. Navy victory ever. Now, I put this on the screen. You see that there were other riots in this area, the Mastery Riot of 1734. If you ever visit New England, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maine, and you see signs like this, stop and read them because they tell really amazing stories about how ordinary men and women, as I just said, did extraordinary things. And I mean, this was a completely different breed of human. You look today at what makes people outraged. You, you had people rallying for war over taxes on tea, over taxes on paper. Now, it all adds up, right? It all adds up. And, and I don't want to belittle the British taxes because they really did destroy entire industries in the colonies. It's often that people describe it as, oh, it's just a couple, a couple cents on tea. That's significant when your business is import-export of tea. But nowadays, just think about all the taxes that are levied against us. No one's revolting against these taxes. We've all just kind of just accepted, like, eh, we'll take it. Whereas back then, the slightest tax, the slightest, the, the littlest slight against them, when they felt that their liberties were being violated, it was enough to prompt a call to arms. So I tell these stories not just to show you where we came from, but to make you think about where we're going. If a lumber dispute was enough to drive these hungover 
colonists to go take on a British warship with pitchforks. What would it take to make Americans today equally outraged? What would it take? I mean, you think about the British turning their guns on the, the village of Machias. That's not all that different than Eric Swalwell talking about nuking Americans in a potential civil war. But what would it take? What would it take today to make Americans so outraged that they go on this kind of campaign? I don't know. I don't know. I thought that COVID would have done it. I thought that the idea of being forced to lock yourself in your home, fined for going on a drive, being fined for going to church, being fined for going to the beach, I thought that would have been enough, but it wasn't. So to me, this is a little terrifying because if, if those draconian lockdowns weren't enough to prompt people to do patriot stuff, I don't know whatever will. Now, that's not me saying that I want there to be an armed rebellion. I want, them to be a, want there to be a civil war. Obviously, I don't. I've said this time and time again. I don't want that. I want to be able to see my kids grow up. I want to be there on their wedding day. I don't want to die in some civil war before they've even grown. But the fact that we're, the American people are just sitting back and taking this, taking these abuses, very concerning. It should be very concerning to all, to all of us. So, I tell you, again, I tell you the story not only to highlight the heroism of these early American colonists, but also to make you think, what would it take? What would it take to make Americans do something similar today? If, if, the, if that moment hasn't already happened, what would it take? Well, that's going to be it for this edition of the Max McGuire Show. I hope you like it. This is, uh, again, this was a topic that I was planning to do for the Conservative, da for Conservative Daily when I was doing um, a Real American History podcast over there. Joe ordered me to stop doing those podcasts. I know lots of people liked them. So I figured I'd, I'd bring one up, one of those old topics I was preparing to do up today. Um, so let me know if you like this, because I, I have lots of other stories I want to tell of, of American heroes, um, uh, Medal of Honor winners, things like that. If you like this kind of content, make sure you leave a comment um, either on Rumble or on any of the other um, audio podcast sites where you can find this. And if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the audio version available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, uh, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Podbean, and Audible. All those links are in the description. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you can. And if you like these history podcasts, do leave a good review about that as well and a comment so I can know, so I can know to do more of them. Again, if you haven't already picked up my book, The Conservative's Guide to Winning Every Gun Control Argument, is available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And it does include a lot of history stories similar to this one to tell the, the story of the Second Amendment, civilian gun ownership, but also anecdotes to use to defeat gun control arguments. So if you haven't already picked one up, you can do so at links in the description as well. That's going to be it for this edition of the Max McGuire Show. As I said earlier, my name is still Max McGuire. Remember everyone, the fight to take back our country is not over yet, but the only way we win is if we all stand and fight together. See you tomorrow.